0: Welcome back to Cranbox Politics, a project devoted to coloring outside the normal political spectrum in order to create a new political landscape that represents those of us left behind by two-color politics. In this episode, the first of a three-part discussion, we're going to focus on abortion and the individual's right to choose whether they want to carry a child to term In their body. We should also be clear that this choice isn't just about using abortion as a method or a means of controlling birth, also known as birth control. This choice has larger implications on the health of the person carrying the child. So without further ado, let's dig in. Let's look at the world of reproductive rights at the birth of our nation and let's follow those rights, particularly the right to choose, watching the ebb and flow until we get to the decision in the case of Roe versus Wade. Let's start off with a couple definitions so that we're all on the same page. The National Institute for Health defines reproductive health as the condition of male and female reproductive systems during all life stages. They define reproductive systems as the organs and hormone-producing glands to include the pituitary gland in the brain, ovaries in females, and testicles in males that are reproductive organs that maintain the health of the reproductive systems. Essentially, that definition describes the ability for humanity to reproduce. So those are the definitions of reproductive health and reproductive systems. What about reproductive rights? According to the World Health Organization, which is an international organization that falls under the United Nations and does a lot of work on the international stage to further the Betterment of the health of the global population. They define reproductive rights as the rights of an individual to make decisions regarding reproduction and reproductive health. Basically, they see reproductive rights as the right of the individual to decide how they want to maintain their ability to reproduce. Together, these definitions paint a picture where reproductive rights affect everyone. Yes, This series will focus on abortion rights specifically, but that's not the only thing that matters when discussing reproductive health. I say this because I want to make sure that we're all on the same page, that we all understand that reproductive rights and reproductive health is not just about the right of anyone that can carry a child to decide whether they want to carry that child to term. Reproductive rights are very broad. For example, if you choose to abstain, Reproductive rights includes your right to remain celibate. Reproductive rights also include the right to be promiscuous, the right to wear a condom, the right to use birth control or any form of contraceptive, the right to seek a sperm donor or an egg donor, and even the right to determine whether an individual wants to carry out a procedure that in medical terms would leave them sterile and unable to reproduce. Every one of these rights at some point in our nation's history were challenged, taken away, and restored to the people. At the birth of our nation, abortion for free white women was largely accepted and carried out routinely. There were even publications that discussed methods by which abortions could be done and done safely. You see, in the 18th century, Abortion was generally seen as a method by which a woman could maintain her image and status in society in the face of having a child outside of wedlock. In the early days of our nation, women generally had a lot of sway in matters of the home. In that society, women were viewed as the keepers of the household. Everything that happened, from cooking to birthing children, was a responsibility of the woman at the house, and the man left in order to provide for the family. And while doctors existed at that time, midwives handled the birthing of the children. They handled the entire process from conception to birth and labor. They even handled the abortions when needed. In fact, it wasn't until 46 years after. America's independence in roughly 1821 that the first anti-abortion law was passed, and this law made it illegal for abortions to occur after what was then known as the quickening, or when the mother could feel the child moving in her belly. Again, this was largely dependent on the woman determining when she felt the child move. Man couldn't decide that. Men couldn't make that decision. Only a woman could. And so women were be- trusted to determine when abortion was no longer an option under the law. This made it hard for courts to enforce the law. And when needed, a panel of women experienced in birth were required to do the gynecological examination of any woman expected of having run afoul of the anti-abortion law and report their findings to the courts. It wasn't until the 1800s that male doctors began to endeavor into a woman's purview. It wasn't until the 1800s that male doctors began to do gynecological examinations and began to work with pregnant women in order to ensure successful delivery of their child. This is not to say that there weren't abortion cases that occurred in the late 1700s, early 1800s. But those cases weren't centered around the abortion of a fetus. Those cases were centered around the death of the woman in the process of aborting her fetus. And the people that were on trial were men who executed those abortion. One such case occurred in 1740s Connecticut, where prosecutors tried both a doctor and a Connecticut man for a misdemeanor in connection with the death of a Sarah Grosvenor, who died after a botched abortion. The case revolved around the men's role in the woman's death, not the abortion. Now, when laws went into effect that banned abortion post-quickening, they were created because of the way that society viewed personhood of the fetus at that time you see society did not view the fetus as a person until the woman felt it kick they didn't view it as a human they didn't view it as anything other than the woman being with child and they wanted to protect that child once it was understood to be viable as a human being which is the quickening and that quickening typically occurred right around the 21st week of pregnancy. The procedures that occurred prior to that occurred in order to clear the blockage in order to promote a woman's return to her monthly discharge of the uterus. Towards the mid-1830s another reason was added for women getting abortions and that addition occurred because in 1835 The average woman would give birth more than six times throughout her lifetime. Given the dangers of childbirth, many women wanted to limit the number of times that they gave birth in order to ensure that they could remain alive and healthy for the children that they did have and not passed away from their next child. They understood that if procreation did not kill them or their babies, it could easily maim them for life. You see, abortion was so common that it's estimated around 35% of all 19th century pregnancies ended in abortion. This golden age of women's right to choose and the women's dominance over the household did not extend to everyone. In fact, enslaved women were forced to carry every pregnancy to term. Abortion was not an option to an extent that Many slave owners, being paranoid about abortion on their plantations, would lock their enslaved women up once they were pregnant in order to prevent them from having self-induced abortion. That's not to say that abortions did not occur. Similar to the way that the free white female population had midwives, so did pregnant slaves. The medical care of the pregnant enslaved woman was left up to black midwives who, under the watchful eye of the slave owners, were known to have used methods such as chewing cotton roots or ingesting things like calomel or turpentine in order to induce an abortion that seemed a natural miscarriage. The 19th century saw a restriction of a woman's right to choose This started to occur in conjunction with what is known as the Second Great Awakening that occurred in America. During that time, it was individuals who held rather strong religious views that believed that our nation was moving in ways that they viewed were immoral. Ministers called for morals-based laws like Sunday closing laws, blasphemy prosecutions, and temperance laws. And they began to embrace A Catholic belief that life began at conception wasn't originally a Protestant belief. However, during the Second Great Awakening, the idea of being born again made many believe that life began at conception, and it captured the views of a large percentage of American Protestants. It was also at this time that people began to refer to America as a Christian nation. Those changes in society, coupled with the rise of the American Medical Association, which was established in the 1840s, began to degrade the woman's right to choose. You see, the American Medical Association took on the view that the fetus was a person from conception. Some leaders were fiercely religiously grounded, so it's likely that these views were based on the religious views of the doctors who formed the fledgling organization that is now a massive powerhouse within our medical community. Another explanation is that the American Medical Association, many of them, all of them, doctors, wanted to take over the process of giving birth and put midwives out of business. They wanted to regulate, they wanted to control, they wanted to ensure that they were the center of all medical procedures. You see, they held a view and a belief that the non-regulated medical procedures were bad. And they pushed this view, establishing laws that required licensing, that required certifications, and made it difficult for midwives to do their jobs. And so gradually, midwives took a back seat, and then they didn't have a seat at all at the table. And doctors became the dominant force in everything medical to include a woman's right to make her own choices about abortion. Now, despite the American Medical Association's stance on abortion, this was the first time that male doctors had identified life as beginning at conception and not at the moment of the quickening or 21 weeks into a pregnancy. History points to a male gynecologist by the name of Horatio Storer, who in the mid-1800s began to push the AMA in order to explore what he called criminal abortion. You see, Storer argued that abortion was immoral and caused derangement in women because it interfered with the natural course. Storr lobbied for the association to think of abortion not as a medical act, but as a grave crime that lowered the medical profession as a whole. Now, this argument made it difficult for male doctors to justify conducting abortions in their practices because the medical association took a stance that It was immoral and criminal. And so doctors didn't want to conduct those actions. They did not want to provide abortion offerings because it risked them running afoul of the medical association and it risked them losing their licenses because the American Medical Association took a stance against them. Horatio Storr didn't stop with pushing the association to define abortion as a crime. No, he went further he gathered fellow physicians into a crusade that he called the Physicians' Campaign Against Abortion, and their stance helped to serve as justification for an increasing number of criminal statutes. By 1910, every state in the nation had anti-abortion laws on the books, although many of these laws included exceptions for pregnancies that endangered the life of the mother. Going further, with the help of A U.S. Postal Inspector by the name of Anthony Comstock, it became harder to access information on how to end an unwanted pregnancy, information that was readily available in the 1800s. In 1873, the Comstock Act made it illegal to send obscene material to include information about abortion or contraception through the mail or across state lines. Over time, the anti-obscenity laws the criminal statutes, and the 1906 Pure Food and Drug Act, which made it unlawful to make, sell, or transport misbranded or deleterious drugs or medicines, made it increasingly difficult for women to access the safer forms of abortions. This didn't stop women from seeking abortions. It only made them turn to more dangerous options, more lethal options. In the 20th century, it's still up for debate on how often women died from self-induced or botched back-alley abortions. But a chief statistician with the Bureau of the Census in 1942 noted that despite the lack of accurate reporting, abortion was evidently still one of the greatest problems to be met in lowering further the maternal mortality rate for the country. You see, despite the fact that medical advances had come so far, women were still dying of pregnancy. They were still dying of childbirth. They were still dying because they were carrying children. And they were still dying because they were seeking abortions to end unwanted pregnancies in a method and a means by which it was unregulated. It was not safe. And thus women died. Estimates of the number of illegal abortions between the 1950s and 1960s, fall between 200,000 and 1.2 million per year, according to the Gutmatcher Institute. Similar estimates identify that illegal abortion resulted in the death of 2,700 women in the 1930s. That comes out to one out of every five recorded maternal deaths that year. And by 1940, that death toll declined to just under 1,700, And by 1950 to just over 300, largely due to the introduction of antibiotics. In 1965, deaths due to illegal abortions fell to under 200, but still accounted for 17% of all maternal deaths that year. And that's just the ones that were reported. You see, when you're doing illegal things, you're not going to tell anyone that you're doing illegal things or that you're breaking the law, so the death rate could be higher. More women could have died from an illegal operation, simply because men wanted power. In the 60s, society began to change, and Americans began to demand a change to the way things were done when it came to women's reproductive rights. They saw that illegal abortion had become a health crisis throughout the nation. Because thousands of women were dying every year from those unsafe back-alley abortions. And by the early 1970s, the American Medical Association, that same association that identified abortions as criminal and immoral, banded together with members of clergy and the American Bar Association, as well as feminist activists, in order to push for a repeal of abortion bans. The state of Colorado became the first state to change its law in 1967, followed very quickly by California and then in New York. And in 1973 the Supreme Court legalized abortion in all 50 states with the Roe versus Wade decision. Now the too-long-didn't-read summary of what I just discussed is that the United States began as a nation with an unregulated but legal abortion process. It was practiced, it was common, it was known and understood midwives, not doctors, were responsible for women's reproductive health. Women were trusted to make decisions about their bodies, except in the case of enslaved women, and male doctors focused on other areas of medicine. However, at the turn of the 20th century, the United States had become a nation that had criminalized abortion and placed male doctors as the experts in women's reproductive health. The criminalization of abortion The lack of access to safe abortion methods forced women across the nation to seek dangerous, often deadly abortions outside of the confines of the law, in the back alleys, unregulated, unobserved, untested, and many of them paid with their lives. This increasing death toll resulted in society evaluating their stance on abortion. It resulted in moving the people of America into an area of acceptance. And by the 1970s, a woman's right to choose was respected once again and had become legal. Next time on Cranbox Politics, we're going to examine how the decision in Roe impacted reproductive health in America. We're going to follow history as we see how anti-abortion laws and the pro-life movement adjusted to the decision, and we're going to look at how the Dobbs decision came to be. Thank you for listening, and if you liked this episode, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, or hop on over to www.cranboxpolitics.com and read the blog. Our sources are there. Stay tuned and let's get everyone to color outside the lines together.